most of our platform, I would say like 90% is written in Java. Initially, guys tried to do some business in Croatia, but it's a very small market. Basically, they almost kind of gave up until they realized that actually they can do business outside of Croatia in the whole world. And this was kind of the game changer. If we are building a new product, uh, maybe the fastest way is, you know, not to worry about infrastructure so much and try just to, you know, get this product as fast as possible out there, kind of validate that it works and that it starts being money in. Hey there, it's Sean Faulkner, one of the creators of Software Huddle, and I'm really excited for you to listen to today's interview with Mario Zagar, a distinguished engineer at Infobit. A lot of you might not be super familiar with the company Infobit, but they're actually a monster in the omni-channel communication space that bootstrapped to one billion in revenue based out of Croatia. They're now doing multiple billions in revenue and competing directly against companies like Twilio. Mario has been there nearly since the beginning, and in the episode, we go through his and InfoBib's journey for the past 15 years. We discuss the super early days of engineering at InfoBib, when they were running a monolith on a single server, to today running a hybrid cloud containerized infrastructure with thousands of databases serving billions of requests. It's a really fascinating look and deep dive into the evolution of engineering at a company over the past 15 years and the challenges of actually architecting for scale. I really think you're going to enjoy hearing from Mario. Last thing before I kick things over to the interview, if you enjoy the episode, don't forget to subscribe to Software Huddle and leave us a positive review and rating. All right, enough plugs. Let's get to the interview. Mario, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. Uh, I know it's kind of towards the end of the day for you, I imagine, but uh, I appreciate you finding time for this. Let's, uh, let's start by having you introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Mario, and uh, basically I'm a software engineer. So I've been in software development for the last about 20 years. But uh, I'm in computer since, you know, I know basically about myself. Uh, and currently, I'm working uh, at Infobip uh, for the last about 14 years, a little bit more than that. Uh, currently, the position of the distinguished engineer, part of the platform architecture team. Uh, yeah, this is pretty much it. <laughs> right. So you've been 15 years at uh, Infobip. You still enjoy it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Lots of challenges there. Uh, very dynamic. Um, you know, it's like, uh, but, you know, not one single company doing one product. It's like a bunch of companies doing lots of products. So I can pick and choose the problem I want to solve. That's awesome. Yeah. So InfoBip is a, a global cloud communication platform. And it's a it's a big company. And I think one of the most incredible things that I've always heard or, or, or thought about InfoBip is the fact that it bootstrapped to a billion dollars in revenue, which is uh, you know just a, an amazing achievement. And I know about InfoBip from my time working at Google because I was working in the business messaging space and I did a lot of work mm -hmm. with InfoBip at that time. But I feel like unless you're really in sort of the communication space, a lot of people in the US aren't that familiar with InfoBip. Um, so, so how did the company start and, and sort of when was that? Yeah, so the, the company was founded in 2006 by you know a couple of guys fresh out of college and uh, sending SMS basically, right? And uh, around 2008, uh, uh, guys managed to send their own like uh, SMS. So like, what's the difference? Uh, there's a bunch of companies that uh, actually kind of provide you with the API to send you know, messages to end users from business side. 
but usually kind of they connect to the operators to to telecoms using their APIs and so on. But these guys managed to kind of really deploy uh, an SMSC, so basically you know uh, an application inside the telecom network, and uh, basically send the SMS very cheap. And this was kind of when the boom when the boom started. And uh, I, I joined the uh, Infobip shortly after that. Uh, this is basically when kind of business picked up, and uh, more and more kind of uh, customers uh, started coming in, and we needed to kind of start building lots of features. Yeah, and was that originally were they just focused on the Croatian market, or were they all over Europe even at the beginning? Yeah, this is like a funny. Initially, the guys tried to do some business in Croatia, but it's a very small market, and. Uh, uh, Basically, they, they almost kind of gave up uh, until they realized that actually they can do business outside of Croatia in the whole world. And this was kind of the game changer and something that kind of opened up the horizons and uh, what the company could go, go for. Yeah, I imagine. So can you talk a little bit about what the early days of being at an engineer at InfoBiff sort of on the ground floor was like? Yeah, sure. So yeah, yeah for me, it's also like amazing to... To basically witness, you know, the the whole evolution of Infobit from the day when I when I came there and how it looked then to where where the company is now, right? So when when I came at the company, there were like two sites in Croatia, uh, and one, one site uh, had around maybe I don't know ten developers and two applications they were working were working on, and uh, another site where I was at had just you know one application uh, on which we worked on. And that, there was basically, you know, there, there wasn't any normal stuff that uh, is kind of normal these days, like, uh, you know, some, some built servers, some, you know, repositories for, uh, for the artifacts that they get built, some deployment procedures. Everything was done pretty manually. Uh, but the in interesting thing was, and this is, this is one thing that I liked uh, really a lot, is that guys wrote tests. You know, so when I kind of got there, they had tests and yeah, deployment was manual and uh, th there wasn't any, you know, built server, you know, one guy built it on his own machine and kind of then copied, you know, <laughs> copied it over and uh, deployed it. But they had like high availability uh, since they were kind of doing it in this telecom space. They early on realized they need to have some, you know, high availability. If one machine goes down, uh, then, you know, the other should kind of be able to handle the, the load. So this was kind of uh, put on like the standard from the early days, which was very, very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I remember those days of the, the man, uh, somewhat manual build process. You know, you build it yeah. basically on your local machine and then, and then you move yeah. it over. But it sounds like there was probably a lot of focus on uh, basically, you know, building and deploying scalable uh, data centers because of the fact that you're in the telecommunication space and also the the nature of that time. It's not like you had public cloud services where you're just spinning up, uh, you know, containers on, uh, you know, Google Cloud or Azure or AWS or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So it was a little like in the in the early days, it was a little bit better than running like the whole production in, in, on the machine under my desk. You know, it was. Uh, some data center, we, we rented some physical hosts there, and uh, it was actually like Windows machines, and we were running like all the applications there. And there were like a couple of hosts, and the, the other application, this, you know, uh, telecom application that was actually running inside the telecom operators network, this was the uh, kind of uh, 
you know, let's say, in another data center owned by the telecom as a, you know, piece of equipment actually kind of running there and, uh, uh, you know, sending sending and receiving uh, SMS messages uh, directly from the telecom network. So this was, uh, uh, yeah, this was very, very interesting time. And there, were, there, were, there was no, like, dependency management, you know. Uh, basically what, you know, weird things would happen. We would kind of uh, add some new library that we found useful and uh, we would kind of test it, uh, try to test it locally. We would deploy it. And then, uh, you know, th there would be some edge case when this library would call another library, which we didn't package, you know, and everything would fall apart. So it was like funny, funny scenarios like that. And at some point we realized like, hey, maybe, maybe we should be able to build these kind of uh, uh, artifacts that we deploy on, on one single source of truth machine. It shouldn't be like, what if this guy goes on vacation or something, you know, it's like this bus factor problem. And uh, uh, then we then we kind of started, started kind of, okay, let's let's try to introduce some uh, continuous integration, you know, at least we, we, like we have tests. So, you know, we have this version control. Why not uh, whenever there is some change, you know, run all these tests uh, automatically instead of, you know, waiting for someone to do it. But what what was the code base at that time? What was the you know main programming language and stack that you were building? Oh yeah, so so basically there were like three applications. Uh, these applications were running on telecom premises. This uh, SMSC, uh, which is uh, responsible for receiving and talking basically to the telecom network using telecom protocols. This was Java. Java running on on Linux machines, and uh, the. Uh, the application that uh, was uh, uh, receiving kind of requests from customers to send messages. This was also written in Java. And there is like this one uh, back office application, basically through which we kind of configured the behavior of the system and kind of try to do billing and so on. This was actually like, I think, web forms, visual basic, something like that. So basically, you know, the people that were there uh, whatever they knew, this was the stack. There, there was no, you know, like it, it was really about pick and choosing, like what was the best. It was like what you could do. This is what you, <laughs> you, you kind of used yeah, yeah. to solve the problem. And then everybody at the time for the engineering organization was located in, in Croatia? Yeah, yeah. Everything was in Croatia, basically in Pula. The main office was in Pula and the other development site was in Zagreb. And they, this was pretty much it. And what was, what was the source control system? Oh, it was subversion. So oh, okay, was, yeah, yeah, we were using subversion, uh, and uh, some at some point later, we, you know, later in this evolution, we kind of switched to Microsoft uh, Team Foundation Server because it had not not only source control, it uh, it also had like this task management. So this was kind of cool. Then after that, we kind of switched over to Git and also to Jira, and it was kind of the evolution. But right now, this is where we are. We're kind of using Jira for, for issue management and tracking and uh, Git for, for source control. And then besides, you know, some of the pain around, uh, you know, essentially scaling up uh, your, your CICD to actually like a, like a build process that uh, is not running on someone's machine or dependent on someone's machine, what were some of the big, you know, engineering challenges you faced in those early days? Oh, yeah. So, one of the challenges was uh, like, how do we deploy? Like this this manual deployment, at some point we kind of realized that we are making enough mistakes to kind of start changing stuff and try to automate it and try to kind of remove the, you know, the, the human factor from the equation. 
and uh, maybe have some uh, more stable deployment. So this was like the first thing. Then the, the next big thing that we kind of solved uh, uh, was actually this dependency management. Uh, how, how do we handle these libraries? How do we kind of pull libraries that we want to use into our application and then uh, also pull in transitive libraries that you know these libraries are using? So we, we, we started using Maven for, for Java and this, this also kind of solved this pain point which caused a lot of you know uh, problems in production that we you know just because we were missing libraries so this was this was also also kind of nice and there there were also like other challenges mostly involved with the infrastructure and uh, how do we deploy like uh, like manual deployment was one thing where we you know you needed to know exactly the uh, the steps you need to perform, like, okay, I should reconfigure HA proxy, I should remove this from uh, target from uh, from list of backends, then I should stop, I should start, I should something. And all of this was done manual. And the, the other thing was the, the underlying infrastructure itself. So, you know, we had these uh, physical machines and then these physical machines, we were running, you know, some SQL Server database on top of them. We wanted the SQL Server database databases to be like highly available. So it was basically some Windows cluster running this uh, using uh, some shared storage under the hood where the actual data was stored. And uh, then Windows cluster would kind of know, oh, okay, you know, one machine is down. Uh, I will promote another one to kind of be owner of this data and you know, continue handling the data. And then, you know, the sh shared storage died. That was kind of, we rented basically the sh shared storage solution. It was not under, under our control. We, we rented it from the data center provider. So at, at that point, we kind of realized, okay, maybe maybe we should have more control under, you know, what, what kind of storage we use and also uh, switch maybe from these dedicated physical machines where you would, we, we would basically know like, okay, this machine is for that, that machine is for that, like classical, you know, uh, pet versus cattle uh, problem. And uh, yeah. at that point, we, we kind of started going into direction where we introduced uh, virtualization. So instead of kind of directly putting applications on physical machines, we, we actually just rented bigger, bigger physical machines and uh, used virtualizers to, to create virtual machines and run our applications on top of it. And that, that was kind of a, a move for, for the better. And also we started, uh, we, we bought like dedicated storage solutions that was kind of more under our control and we knew like what we could kind of count on in terms of uh, failures and what could go wrong basically. So yeah, it was mostly about stability. Yeah. And, and for the virtualization, was that something that you had to build or was that something that you were able to, you know, buy something? Yeah, we were, you know, at, at that time we were using Microsoft Hyper-V to, to kind of drive the, the virtual machines. That was, that was, again, something that, you know, some guy knew. And yeah, this is what we kind of uh, started using. Uh, today we are, we are, uh, we are like mostly switched over to VMware. VMware as the primary virtualization platform. Uh, so, yeah, but it's still like virtualization. And then is is Java still the sort of primary programming language that people are developing? Definitely. So most of our platform, I would say like 90% is written in Java. Then we have, we have some Node.js. We have some, you know, .NET, be that C-sharp or whatever. Uh, 
and uh, yeah, th this is pretty much it. And uh, and for the UI, it's mostly React, uh, React stuff. So um, uh, th this is how our kind of stack looks like. But also like more and more with this, uh, you know, data analytics and data science applications uh, being created. Uh, there is also like lots of Python and right. uh, whatever. Basically, you know, we we are kind of. Um, uh, Maybe for, for the applications that are running on platform, we kind of prefer Java because the interoperability between you know, all of these services applications that are running is then easier. And the, 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 the tool chain basically that we are using to make the building of applications easier is then the same for everyone, right? And, uh, uh, but, but there is no like, if I can solve a problem with, you know, with, Go, with Golang or with whatever, you know, let's, let's do that. And uh, th this is where we are at now. And uh, for, for now, it's kind of working, working out fine. It has its own like, pros and cons. On the analytics front, what, what's the tool chain there? Are you using sort of uh, modern warehousing technologies, things like, like Snowflake or Databricks or something like that? Or are you doing something that's more uh, custom? Yeah. So, so basically, like when we are doing analytics, it's mostly about like customer facing analytics so that we can provide some reporting to the customers, like diff different kind of reports. Uh, and these are, these are mostly aggregated reports. So like how this stack looks like a bunch of these messages and message statuses go through, through Kafka as uh, some you know, messaging pipeline and uh, we, we process it and it ends up, in the end, it ends up in ClickHouse. And in ClickHouse, we kind of do the aggregation, right. and this is this is then the data source that we basically expose to our customers, where we you know get this data from. But we also had like before ClickHouse, we had our own solution built on top of SQL Server, which is uh, you know basically an aggregation engine, uh, and and it is still used. So it's not like we have like one solution. So it's uh, it's kind of. But mostly we are preferring ClickHouse. Uh, sometimes there are some reasons where you know where this uh, SQL solution still kind of works okay, works fine. How are those choices made within the organization? Like to to essentially invest in in something like ClickHouse? Are you is someone essentially uh, you know charged with you know figuring that stuff out and then they test out a bunch of different possible solutions and make a recommendation? Like how how are those decisions made? Yeah. Usually it all starts with uh, having some problem, right? That you know th there is some itch that we want to scratch for some reason, and uh, l let's see if we can, uh, you know, how we can do it better potentially, right? And usually it's problem dealing. So there is some problem that we, that we are experiencing. Be that, for example, like uh, how fast can we like add another field to this report? Like is is this like a process that takes a one month and involves thirty teams? And uh, if yes, like how can we improve this? If is this even like a problem? And if yes, then let, how how do we go about it? So usually it's like some some problem that kind of uh, uh, starts starts this thinking process. What could be potential solutions? And then basically teams or the developers or the engineers that are in this field try to see if you know if there is some some smarter way. Uh, so sometimes. 
you know, we, we just try to kind of step out of this, uh, whatever technology I'm, I'm using. So if I'm very comfortable with SQL Server, you know, probably every solution that I can think of will evolve, you know, SQL Server, right? And yeah. uh, sometimes we just try to kind of step out of this uh, zone and try try some other, like see what is now available in the market, what, what are other people, companies doing, uh, you know, and in the end, yes, somebody tries out, okay, let's do a POC like this, this looks like on my machine, this looks like blazingly fast, this clickhouse, how could this work? Let's, you know, let's try to connect some data directly from Kafka and see, you know, how this works, does it die? The, the good thing here is that, you know, there is no risk, basically. We're not exposing anything to the customer. We just, you know, we will just put a bunch of this data and clickhouse. If it breaks, fine, you know, we will learn something. If it doesn't break, we continue. So this is pretty much it. Sometimes we will uh, we will test like uh, multiple solutions, but we are usually we are kind of restricted with time, and then we try to kind of narrow this uh, uh, you know amount of choices and try to pick one, right? Sometimes because we are really uh, in the need to solve something fast, we will just pick some cloud solution, you know, like DynamoDB or whatever, instead of you know spinning up some whatever you know locally it's just faster and then over time we we can make this decision uh, okay now we have enough traffic this is generating a lot of cost uh, let's see if we can do it on prem yeah okay so part part of the I, I imagine like a lot was uh in the early days you were you're you know buying from data centers or you're doing things on prem and now it sounds like you you kind of have like a hybrid system set up but you might move things on prem uh, once they have been proven out in order to essentially have a certain cost savings? Is, is that sort of the motivation there? Yeah, exactly. Usually how it starts is, you know, if, if we're building a new product, uh, maybe the fastest way is, you know, not to worry about infrastructure so much and try just to, you know, get this product as fast as possible out there, kind of validate that it works and that it starts bringing money in. And once that, that happens, and then, you know, during this period when we are, you know, testing the waters, there is not much traffic. Also, the cost of these cloud solutions is not that big. But then, right. you know, if, if we kind of got the product right and there is interest for this and there is more and more traffic, then also the bills start to increase. And there is some point at which we will say, okay, now, now we should kind of see how, how much are we earning? How much does this cost? Does it make sense to invest into kind of moving stuff on-prem. Uh, the same thing is about uh, data centers. So uh, we initially started with, you know, just, you know, renting space in, in the data centers, co-locating our hardware there and running stuff there. And yes, th this kind of, uh, you have this upfront cost that you need to pay to kind of buy all this hardware, ship it to data center, you know, install it, set it up and so on. But uh, it, it in comparison, at least according to our calculations, you know, comparing it to the cloud solutions it was uh, it was always like uh, cheaper like you know it's just cheaper to do but uh, sometimes uh, especially when we kind of need it fast uh, then it's just faster to do it in the cloud like we spin it up in the cloud and uh, use the hardware there and we have we have this infrastructure there so set up that usually i don't really care where my machine is as long as the network is you know uh, good enough so that I don't feel this extra latency between, you know, my on-premise data center and the nearest cloud, which is there. So, uh, yeah, S sometimes we will just do that, especially during, 
during these uh, uh, seasonal events, like kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, uh, Christmas, Easter, uh, and, and so on, when there is the increase in traffic, and we know that it will happen, then it just doesn't make sense to buy a bunch of hardware and then, you know, after this week passes, what to do with it. So we just kind of go into the cloud, spin up one data center, uh, run it for a week, and then scale it up. Yeah, that makes sense. It's not like a, it's not a long-term investment. You just need to exactly. scale up for for these uh, spikes in traffic. In terms of um, you know when you're developing you know new products or new features, you know I imagine InfoBiff's dealing with really really like large scale, high volume of, of calls. How do you kind of prepare for or figure out what you need in terms of infrastructure? to gauge against like you know, essentially reducing latent, the potential latency? Like how, how does you go about sort of testing for scale? Yeah. So this is like a, a standard problem that we have when we spin up a new data center. So so on, on one side, we have the input from the business. Okay, you know, we, we, we know why we are spinning this data center. We know what customers are waiting uh, for this data center, which customers are going to use it. What is their plan in terms of how many messages per second they plan to send over, over our platform. So this is one number that we have. So we will usually spin up this data center uh, uh, to so that we are able to kind of handle this number. And we, we already have like a bunch of data centers, so we kind of know like how, how much we need. And uh, we also have already some flavors so that we know, okay, we, we need to spin up, you know, type A to be able to handle, you know, 10,000 requests per second or whatever. But once the data center is up, we actually need to kind of verify it. We want to do some acceptance testing that will tell us, yeah, you know, when you really call this API, the message gets sent and delivered. And uh, when you call this API, you know, stuff that needs to happen really happens. It's not something I will just deploy it and it, it automatically works. So uh, after the data center is deployed, so, you know, we bring in the hardware, we kind of put the virtual machines on top, we deploy all this software, uh, we configure everything. Then there is this slow testing phase where we are basically, uh, you know, putting some artificial traffic into this uh, data center, just as customers will. You know, data really gets processed. It really goes to this messaging pipeline. It really gets stored in the database. And we are like really pushing the system to see, okay, at, at which point will, will, will something break? Uh, do we have any any parts of the system that may, may need, you know, additional resources or instances or whatever? And uh, after this test is done, basically we clean up the databases and then it's ready ready for, for the customers. Yeah. And, and then later, just, just to add later, you know, there might be new customers that come in. They will bring additional traffic, but we know like how much we can handle. And then we also know, okay, you know, if we need an additional, I don't know, 1,000 requests per second uh, capacity, we know like how do we scale our system? Like 10 more instances of that, three more instances of that, and so on. So yeah, this is uh, uh, this was kind of uh, where we ended up in uh, empirically through through time. Yeah, and trial and error, something that works for us. Yeah, and then are when you're doing deployments, are you you deploying things in such a way where it's like a progressive rollout where 
you know, maybe the features available to, uh, you know, 5% of users and then 10% and then 20% or something like that, where you're sort of, uh, that way you can roll back the changes if some, anything, you know, bad happens from a, you know, scale perspective or from a, you know, a bug being uh, uh, found in, during your live production that you weren't expecting? Yeah. So uh, this is also so something that kind of evolved through time, the way how we kind of roll out this deployment. So, so initially... You know, initially in the early days when we had just one data center and, uh, you know, you had maybe you know, two instances of your application running or maybe 10 instances or whatever, you would usually deploy new version on a single server, kind of, you know, put some traffic to it, see, you know, check out the logs, if everything works okay, maybe take a look at the metrics, are there any, you know, weird spikes or, you know, something, errors, whatever. And then if, if not, you would roll out to the rest of the servers. And uh, this is basically what we are doing today, only we, we are not like looking at this because now we have like 30 data centers and I want to roll out my application, you know, new version to, to all 30 data centers. And usually uh, how this works is when developer is ready to deploy, like, yes, we have this... Uh, environments where we kind of deploy before going to production and do this initial kind of set of tests. Uh, and then we, we, we roll to production. This is just to kind of uh, catch some, you know, nasty bugs and or really uh, different, uh, like difficult failures uh, early on. But once we go to production, we, we use this canary approach. So basically we have a deployment pipeline that is able to deploy in one by one instance and automatically check uh, the metrics and other kind of potential KPIs uh, that I can custom uh, specify for, for my application uh, and automatically roll back if, you know, if I'm outside of uh, predefined limits. And by default, it's like, hey, we are looking at, you know, are, are your APIs uh, returning errors or does everything kind of look okay? Uh, how many error logs do you have in, in the in the log file? Is it like, you know, compared to the same uh, machine statistics like from one hour ago before you kind of started the deployment? And, and we are trying to use this kind of heuristics to maybe check, automatically detect, hey, like we should really roll back because it's so, something is weird, weird here. And if it's not, then we kind of progress to the next machine. And we are able to do it like one by one, uh, really sequentially, like whole data centers, and you need to wait for a long time for everything to get deployed. Or you do it one by one per data center. So you know, all 30 data center in parallel, but you, you are doing canary basically on, on uh, one by one instance inside this data center. And this, this helps a lot in, in kind of preventing uh, and speeding up the rollback basically when some issues got detected. Right, right. So beyond just, uh, you know, the clearly the kind of like scale issues you, you have to deal with from, uh, you know, an infrastructure standpoint, what there's also challenges as you're, you know, essentially scaling teams. So at what point did like having multiple teams kind of working on different things, but on the same source code and projects start to become an issue. And what were the, the ways that you went about trying to like solve some of those issues? I imagine back in the early days, all of this was essentially a monolith that at some point you had to think about like breaking up. Yeah, exactly. And this was like, um, like, I think this is like totally normal approach. Like you just build some application, 
and you you start adding features and uh, then, then you start at least this is for us we, we started getting more and more traffic more and more customers more and more features needed to be built into into this monolith and uh, as, as we are developing this even you know to some point it's not a problem having lots of people working on this uh, but then at, at some point you really start stepping on each other's toes right so we will you know we will touch some common code which will break, you know, totally something on the on the other side. Hopefully, this this get uh, caught by the tests. Uh, but but in the end, we we would really like not to like if if I'm working on a part of the system which really doesn't have anything to do with the other part of the system. I don't want my changes to kind of break this other part of the system. And there is also one other thing like as, as this monolith uh, grew bigger. Like there were just more and more tests. So if I had one feature, I need to wait like for all these tests that I don't really care about, which which I didn't touch, to pass, right? And uh, at, at some point, basically at this point where we started to having like two or three groups of people being, you know, uh, really uh, knowledgeable in this domain, this part of this monolith, uh, we saw that maybe we should kind of start uh, pulling it out. And it, it wasn't just yeah. about that. It was also about uh, uh, how many resources, like how does this machine look like for this monolith? Like how, how much RAM or CPU do I, do I need to have? Basically, it's a sum of like everything, right? And if I have spikes in some other system, it should be able to handle that. If I have spikes in some other part of the system, basically both spikes should be able to uh to, to kind of uh, survive on this machine uh and it was really uh it started to be difficult to understand you know when these spikes will happen what are these spikes how to test this system and so on and it it was start, starting to get difficult to think about the system like uh you know basically i just have one small part but you know actually running in a, in a more complex uh environment right and uh yeah, so, so basically it, we had like stages of this kind of how do we scale and how do we organize teams. At first, you know, this monolith was just kind of, okay, we, we need more throughput, just add more more monoliths. That, that was it. And uh, as second step, as, as more and more people got involved, uh, we started to pull out, pull out these uh, kind of independent parts, you know, billing, let's pull it out. Handling of incoming, SMS messages, let's handle it, you know, totally separate from, you know, outgoing SMS messages. And th this was kind of natural thing. And we didn't start immediately like, like dismantling everything. It, there were just some parts that came naturally to kind of extract and evolve on their own. And with time, we, we got more and more such parts. And it got easier to, to handle, to reason about them. And you know to to actually handle different different scale requirements because incoming messages at that time were like I don't know, ten messages per second at best, and outgoing was maybe you know like one thousand messages per second. So I, you know two machines were enough for incoming messages, but I needed to have like ten machines for for the outgoing. So yeah, and also deployment cycle got easier because now I, you know, I'm just deploying my part. I'm not touching everything else. I'm not touching some common code. It's like my own you know, playground where I where I own the the, the code that I write. So this was this was kind of the the progression how we went from 
you know, single monolith application to kind of just copying the monolith and then extracting and organizing teams around uh, basically functionalities, you know, standalone functionality that yeah, can so evolve on its own. I imagine uh, one of the other benefits too, since, uh, you know, a lot of this was uh, Java code was besides, you know, having to wait for tests to run through this entire monolith, even if the tests had nothing to do with what you were building, you also have the compilation cycle where if the, if the code base is really big, you might be waiting quite a while for it to, get, to essentially compile just so that you can test and deploy it, which is going to slow down your development cycles versus going with this uh, essentially, you know, logical, essentially you're, you're doing some version of microservices. Exactly, exactly. And at that time, like, we didn't really know that it's called microservices. We, we didn't really even <laughs> think, think in those terms. Uh, we, we, we just had a problem, like, hey, we have this big piece of code, everything is slow, I need to wait a lot, I'm making lots of mistakes, I'm killing other people's work, you know, and how do we solve this? And, uh, yeah, so kind of separating it and going into this, uh, you know, multiple service direction was uh, was a good thing, but then it also kind of brought on another set of problems with it, right? Because, you know, not, nothing is for free. Now we had like multiple multiple services that need to communicate. It's not now, you know, the same application I can exchange data very easily. Now I have multiple processes running and I need to kind of pass the data over the network somehow and make them communicate. Uh, and also like, uh, what with databases now? Should we continue to use this one single database or how, how does this work? And how do we also prevent, you know, these bugs on database level, like changing some table that you are, you know, your service is also using and I'm accidentally like uh, removing a column and I don't know that you are using it and so on. So we, we, we kind of needed to also think about that and how to, how to start kind of uh, putting, you know, data in their own domain and having, you know, dedicated databases for your own service. Uh, how, how did you solve the problem of how these different services are, are talking to each other? What was uh, the, essentially the methodology or approach that you took there? Yeah, so, so like first, uh, first approach, because it was Java service, we just used like uh, this Java RMI, uh, you know, thing that comes with Java. Basically, you know, uh, you know I could, there is like an example how I can call, you know, over the network, one Java method from my, you know, from from different Java application. Basically, a remote procedure call. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and then uh, this 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 was fine, uh, right? Like for Java, but it's it, it was also like cumbersome. It's not really easy. You need to have like this registry something, and then you need to really understand how this all works. And then it's really difficult to talk to non-Java services, like how, how do we do that? We need to have some other system and so on. So we went through a couple of iterations there and we ended up at basically, uh, you know, passing JSON over, over HTTP. So, you know, I would just pass JSON and say, look, I want to call your method F, you know, with these parameters, here are the parameters. And we would, we would basically, we built our own RPC engine. Uh, that that kind of just use JSON over HTTP transport, and uh, and this this kind of uh, actually proved to be nice because now I could call this method you know even from command line I could use CURL to to call some method if if I needed to for some batch jobs or clone jobs or whatever uh, I could uh, easily call it from you know non Java services because it's just some you know. HTTP endpoint and you pass JSON, 
But uh, yes, so this was this was nice. But the downside is, okay, now we built you know our own uh, RPC mechanism, but in this in this InfoBP universe of services, like how do we know where the services are? How how do we know which services expose which methods? And then it uh, it kind of pushes you in the direction. Okay, we should have this service registry, you know, some service registry where we can really see like which instances are alive, which instances expose which services, so that we can actually do the uh, do the RPC call, like uh, know which target. And then then we ended up basically uh, doing our own service registry, and also uh, we we decided to start with uh, client side balancing. So this basically means, you know, when I start up my application, I know like which services I need. I will look them up in the registry, right? And then I will call them directly like from my application. And, you know, we built this library that did this client-side balancing. So the, this library would, would do this heavy lifting, like registering on service registry, pulling up the, the you know the the services that we are depending on, understanding which services are available, uh, where, you know, what is the IP, what is the endpoint that we need to call for some method, and so on. And on the on the developer side, it was actually really simple. You just said, hey, you know, I have this Java interface which has these methods, and you know this is. I want to call that service, which implements this, uh, these methods. And in, in Java code, you just had interfaces and it automatically works. When you called it, we would basically, through this library, serialize this call into JSON, pass it over the network to the endpoint that we cho chose uh, in this client-side balancing uh, logic and, uh, you know, deserialize the response and give you back the response, you know, inside this Java function. So you, you didn't have a clue that it was, uh, you know, in process or out of process code. You didn't really care. Yeah. And this was this was really fun. Is that the service that's still in use today or have you moved into, you know, using something like gRPC? Yeah, so so we actually tried the... When we developed this, there wasn't, you know, gRPC. Maybe there were some implementations for RPC calls and these libraries, but actually nothing was really mature enough that uh, uh, that we would kind of be um, fine with using. And we did try. I remember we, at some point, we tried to use, uh, you know, this Eureka uh, service registry basically from Netflix that they uh, open sourced. And we ended up, we ended up, I, I mean, I really wanted to use it. But then I ended up like, uh, okay, now I need to, I need to really this this simple thing. But now I need to f first understand this system, and I then I when I have problems, I need to fix this system. And it was we already had like service registry. It was very simple. We understood how this works, and it, the conclusion was: look, this this just doesn't doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, we'll be constantly troubleshooting some some other system that we know very little about, and we have already like ninety percent of, of this built. And we, we just uh, kind of kept our own. And this, uh, um, I mean, this has like good and bad things, right? I mean, ideally, I would just use some open source stuff and I would be able to fast add features that I want. But usually, at least in my experience, it doesn't work that, that way. You need to really understand this, this other system and then kind of to, to add your features on top of it. So we are still using the service register that we, uh, we kind of developed. 
and we are still using the RPC library that we developed. Because over time, we added more and more features to this library, like very nice right. stuff, for example, like, you know, status checks, Prometheus metrics, out-of-the-box metrics. Basically, now, you know, any service that you kind of create from this service template will out-of-the-box have, you know, metrics and status reports, and it will know how to phone home and, you know, give give kind of health check pings to this service registry uh, so that we have a good overview of like what, what's running, what's not, what's problematic, where maybe there are some network uh, connection issues and so on. And and this this proved like super cool because now that we, we kind of created this service registry, then it was easy to kind of hook up monitoring system to it. Like I had one place where I know, know everything that is running inside our platform and it's very easy to co now configure Prometheus. Okay, now no go and scrape the metrics and kind of let us build these dashboards and alerts on top of it and, and, and whatever. So, yeah. So a lot of, I feel like a lot of companies, you know, you mentioned like, you know, Netflix, companies, uh, Google, Facebook, these companies that have, have had to solve kind of these, uh, you know, massive scale issues over time and solve a lot of these problems. Sometimes they, they've been able to take some of their, you know, solutions and they, you know, bring it to the open source community and then people, you know, uh, uh, start, you know, that becomes like the way that people solve these problems. Does, has InfoBit contributed any of their sort of bespoke solutions that they've come up with internally to solve these problems to open source? Or has that not been something that they've really, you know, focused on? I, I, I know that we kind of discussed at some point, should we, uh, should we kind of open source this uh, InfoBit RPC library? Uh, but but already now in, in this open source world, there are like lots of, like if I was going to do it now, I would just take something off the shelf because there are like lots of great libraries already there. Uh, but we did open source, for example, for Kafka, and this is available on, on GitHub. Like uh, basically it's an application that allows you to manage Kafka topics and uh, like on a really big scale. Because this kind of started to be a problem at some point for us. Like we have in every data center, we have a Kafka cluster. These Kafka clusters are interconnected. Uh, you are able to create a topic and then define, you know, the replication. How do you want to do the cross data center replication? You know, I want to write to one topic in data center A, and then I want to start replicating to all, all other data centers so that I have the same data in that topic in these other data centers and stuff like that. And then it was, it was a problem like these guys that, that are maintaining the Kafka, all these Kafka clusters, like how, how do they create all these topics? How do they configure it? How do they track the changes? How do they like modify? How, how can we see the, the performance of, of this? And in the end, they just build a tool for themselves and for the end users, meaning developers, where basically it, it's very easy to kind of, you know, create the topics, manage changes, apply these changes in production, have some out-of-the-box metrics. And it's uh, actually, I mean, you can probably buy this from Confluent, uh, but but we kind of ended up not doing that. We just solve our own problems. And uh, uh, it, uh, it it looks like, uh, you know, maybe it would be useful for, for some other folks as well. And yeah, it's available on, on GitHub. So this is one one part that we kind of open source. Oh, awesome. And then, you know, looking back, you know, you have such a, you know, rich career from, from the time that you've been in InfoBiv. You still had to, you know, work on a lot of, you know, challenging complex scale problems, both from scaling teams to, you know, scaling infrastructure and 
you know, uh, you know, moving, essentially adapting existing systems that are in production to new, more modern technologies and, te and, and approaches. What, what do you think is like the biggest sort of engineering challenge that you faced through that time? Yeah, so uh, mostly, so mostly it was about uh, kind of stability and how to architecture systems so that uh, that continue to work when when stuff breaks down, right? So that we have this graceful degradation, or or no degradation at all, if possible. And also, like one of the big challenges for us is like how do we do this uh, multi data center applications? You know. Do we kind of confine them to one data center? What what if we have like two data centers in the same region that you know were basically back up one one for the other? Should should we do like uh, you know uh, hot uh, uh, hot cold standbys or should we just do active active? These are these these were kind of the the main questions. I mean, in the end, we just said let's do active active because this active passive never kind of. You know, this passive stuff never works when, when you need it to. So we kind of started doing this active act. And uh, also, you know, at every level, like most challenging stuff for me is like, you know, at, at which, like where where can we have failures? Like because failures not only happen in, in the application or in database level, they happen like, hey, you know, my, my router will die, you know, or or some uh, uh, ISP connection will die. How, how do we handle that? So there are like a bunch of layers before, you know, these packets even come to my application that can actually die. And how do we architect for that so, so that we can survive this and, you know, continue serving these 10,000 requests per second uh, for customers uh, within this, you know, predefined latencies that we want to hit. So, yeah, for me, this was, uh, it still is like the, the biggest challenge. Like, how do we do that? Yeah, I, I think these uh, these infrastructure challenges they, they they never quite go away. You're you're always dealing with more scale, and you can always you know figure out new ways of sort of like you know optimizing and making sure that uh, in the case of a failure, things are handled you know even even better, more gracefully. And then all the deployment challenges that you're you're also facing. And it sounds like you have a you know you have a mix of essentially on-prem and public cloud. I'm sure there's a lot of complexity around. How those how the sort of the deployment pipeline works, uh, even you know choosing which you know, where where do you deploy that stuff, which data center, you know which cloud, and so forth. It probably gets really complicated really fast. Well, Mario, I, I could talk to you all day. Uh, this is really yeah. fascinating. I want to sure. thank you so much for being here. Uh, we, we, there's so much stuff I think we didn't even get to. I'd love to you know dig into how you solve some of your database scale challenges and so forth. But maybe we can have you back down the road. But uh, I know it's a it's getting late for you. I want you to enjoy some of your Friday night. So I will say uh, thank you so much for being here and uh, and and thanks for sharing your experience. Yeah, thank you, Sean.